Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate the flat tire in less than three minutes, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. Best Rest is also the North American distributor for Google Tech filters. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. www.cyclepump.com. There's so many different ways to approach motorcycle travel. Some go for a few days, some weeks, others months, even years. But there's a real danger in getting out there and exploring by motorcycle. And that's in the possibility of becoming addicted. Addicted to motorcycle travel. It's difficult to put a time frame on it, but it's real. Like this next couple we have on, Neek and Paul, both retired, riding their own bikes. They leave on a six month motorcycle trip, no definite plans afterwards. They say if they like it, they can keep going. If they don't, they can head home. Now they're coming up on three years on the road, and it doesn't sound like they're packing it in anytime soon. Oh, and stick around, because after that, we've got some travel tips coming up from another couple of riders. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we get got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. www.maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system, and it's easy to swap from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, and that's gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. I'm Sam Manning. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Pat Jace. Nathan Millwall. Linda Foster. Tiffany Coates. Simon Payton. Raymond Coates. Sterling Noreen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Neek and Paul Hannaby are retired, kind of early, I think. But they've been on the road now for almost three years. Now, it didn't start out that way with a plan to be on for three years. They kind of left open-ended, try it for six months, see where it goes. But as we hear so many times with stories like theirs, there's something about motorcycle travel that if you're not careful, you get bit by the bug. And usually when it bites, it bites hard. Okay. I'm Monique Hennaby. All my friends call me Neek. I'm from Perth in Western Australia and I'm happily retired. Yep, and I'm Paul Hannaby, and uh, I'm literally nowadays just an adventure rider, and we are two bikes, one dream. Neek and Paul, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much, Jim. Hey, last time we talked, we were talking about the Darien Gap. We talked about you guys going over the Darien Gap, but Paul, you just got out of the hospital not long ago. Uh, yeah, that's correct. We uh, The day before New Year's Eve, came down with appendicitis, acute appendicitis. So 
had to go to the hospital and uh, they checked me in that night, ripped my appendix out and luckily got home at three o'clock on New Year's Eve. (laughs) The way you said it too, ripped your appendix out. (laughs) Exactly what country were you in when this happened? (laughs) (laughs) We're in, uh, we're in Chile in a, in a town called Concon at the moment. Were you there when it happened? When, when you went to the hospital? Yes. Wow. So, I mean, think about yeah. it. Like, that's one of those things. I mean, you know, obviously life-threatening. If you Had you been in, you know, some backwater somewhere, it could have been a completely different story. Well, literally, we have been. <laughs> literally, since we crossed into Chile, we've kind of been in the desert, been a long way from big towns. So, I guess everything happens for a reason, and we were very lucky to be where we are, where there's a great medical centre and team. In fact, the anaesthetist that uh, was with Paul, he posted on his Instagram account a photo with Paul in theatre and the caption was, surviving surgery in the third world. (laughs) (laughs) But where we we are is not third world. Like, you know, the hospital was fantastic, the staff were incredible and the facilities were really good, so that's reassuring to know you've got good care. Now, do you have medical insurance that covers this? We do, Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. We have a motto, if you can't afford travel insurance, you can't afford to travel. Yeah, really, because that's one of those things, I mean, you know, you can you can wish all you want, but you can't predict that, that happening to you. And that, do you have any idea what that would have cost? Yeah, I do, because, uh, because it was emergency surgery and we didn't really have time to contact our travel insurance. I just paid for it up front and then the travel insurance has reimbursed me. But the surgery was uh, 5 million pesos, so 10,000, just over 10,000 Australian dollars. And do they want that money before they, they put you under? Absolutely. Yep. I can't imagine laying on the gurney there and having them come back and say, I'm sorry, your credit card didn't go through. <laughs> yeah, there was some confusion between the English and Spanish. And uh, we asked for the price before the operation, like, you know, can you give us an example of how much it's going to cost? And in uh, between our Spanglish and the nurse's Spanglish, she thought we were saying, we don't need the operation. And she's like, no, they have to come out now. You need the operation. And it's like, no, we're going to have the operation, but can you give us an idea of what it's going to cost? <laughs> Did you try and talk them down at all at that point? No. No. You're no. Not really in a bargain. You pay for what you get sometimes. So <laughs> we're in a really good hospital and it's like I'm not going to I'm not going to squabble over some money for anything to do with health. I think you can't when it comes to health, that's something that we just don't ever scrimp on. Yeah, I mean, I was kidding, of course, when I asked if you got a deal, but it's true, though. I mean, a lot of people, when they travel, they try and get a deal on everything, try and talk it down, but that's that's not a place where you want to bargain. No. What happened anyway? How did this come about? Uh, it was just uh, came down with, uh, like, lower abdominal pains um, in the afternoon, and over that night and the next morning, they got worse and worse and worse until the point where I got to really painful and I said to Monique something's going to give in my stomach in a minute like it's that painful and uh, luckily only that morning Monique had spoken to a lady two units below us where we're currently staying and she spoke really good English so Monique went down and saw her and said you know with my husband's in pain he needs to go to the hospital and luckily um, her son and daughter-in-law was staying there, and the daughter-in-law's father is the minister, is one of the ministers for health here in uh, in Peru. Chile. In, oh, sorry, <laughs> Chile, wrong country. And uh, <clears throat> so she actually told us which hospital to go to, which was the best hospital, and they actually drove me to hospital, which turned out really well because the hospital they sent us to was the only hospital in the area that we're in that has a full-time 
anesthesists um, there all the time, so they could just whiz me in and do the operation straight up without calling anyone in. Wow, that's uh, I'm I'm glad you're fine now and you're feeling good. Yeah, on the road to recovery, probably about eighty percent of the way there. I think um, we were given strict instructions not to ride the bike, so. It's now been just over two weeks, so we go back to hospital tomorrow and uh, for a checkup, and hopefully all's good. And how long do you, till you can get back on the bike? Uh, We're hoping he'll say, you know, in the next week, but we've kind of always planned a little bit extra time. So we've got a nice Airbnb here right on the coast, so we've booked this until the 4th of February, so that gives plenty of time to recover and not have to rush you guys started out with really a six-month plan. As you said, you're from Australia. You you went from Australia to, uh, I believe what you did, you went to Thailand first and sat on a beach while your bikes were being shipped to the U.S., to L.A., um, and then you went to L.A. and picked up your bikes. The The plan originally was six months, and, and then you were going to see what happened? Uh, that's correct, yeah. Um, we went with the initial six-month plan and thought we'd see how we feel after that and then uh, decide what we were going to do after that point. Where did you go in the six months? Uh, in previous years, we'd sort of done everything on the west coast of the US. So from LA, we sort of drove diagonally up to the top right-hand corner of the US, which is Maine, and then worked our way all the way down the east coast, zigzagging backwards and forwards, all the way down to the bottom of Key West. And from there, we headed all the way back to Los Angeles. So you've done other bike trips. You've been doing this for a while now. Uh, that's correct, yeah. Mainly mainly to the US and mainly in past years we've done the west coast of the US, but only for six and eight weeks at a time. So you're taking your vacation. What, were you renting a bike? Uh, correct, yes. Yeah, so you rent a bike and, and do your vacation and then head back home. But this is your, your first sort of um, somewhat open-ended. So you're, you're saying six months. You you did a sort of a tour across the States and, and down to Key West and whatnot and, and back to L.A. Um, what was your, your thought process for you guys um, after that? Like when you were talking about this plan originally, Neek, when, when you guys discussed this um, and you, the, you came up with the idea of try it for six months and see, were you going to head north, south, or what, what was the thought? So we thought we'll head off for six months, see how we feel after that time because the other trips we've done have been like six or eight weeks at a time and six or eight weeks comes pretty and goes pretty quick and you think, oh, I really, really would have liked to have stayed much longer. So we thought six months is much longer and we'll see how we feel. But the six months came and went really quickly and we were still really enjoying it. We weren't tired. We weren't homesick. Um, and we thought let's just head south. We've, we've seen Canada before, so south was the option. Uh, so obviously from the US, Mexico is the next stop. Uh, unfortunately, we, I, we didn't really know anything about traveling south through Mexico or Central America. You know, we really had done our research on what we wanted to see in the US. So every time we said to someone, where are you going next? And we said Mexico, we had so many people try to talk us out of it. Like in the US, everyone had a story to tell and they weren't good. And we were sort of thinking, man, we haven't heard one good story. And then we happened to run into a guy called Brian in Colorado. And he said, oh, my wife's from Mexico. We go all the time. We love it. And he planted that seed early on that even though we heard a lot of negative things, this one voice kept coming back in our head saying, you're going to love it. Just go. You're going to love it. So when it was time to cross the border, we sort of put all the negative thoughts out and just 
took a leap of faith and went to Mexico. So we don't travel fast. We're not in a hurry. So they offered us six months. And so we took it gladly. And within the first month, we were in love with Mexico, in love with it. And all the negativity that we'd heard just disappeared. And even to now, it's still one of our favorite countries. What kind of stories? Well, you know, everyone sort of said, when's it going to Mexico? So first of all, it's, I hope you're taking a gun. It's like, well, you know, no, we're not taking a gun. First of all, we're Australian, so, you know, we don't really need a gun. And uh, the other thing is if you have a gun and you pull it, you have to be prepared to use it, and I'm not prepared to use it. So for me, that's just a personal choice. It wasn't an option. We heard about the stories about the cartel. Uh, We heard the stories about kidnapping uh, for ransom money, Uh, you know, credit card theft or little things that happen literally anywhere. But... We sort of, after we heard a lot of people tell the stories about, you know, the cartel and the murders on the beach and the bad things that get associated with Mexico that always hit the media, at one point I said to a guy that was telling this horrific story and I said to him, this is just awful, I'm like I'm stunned, so can you tell me when you were there? And he just looked at me and he goes, oh, I've never been. He goes, but I've heard all about it. And it was sort of at that moment that you realise that everyone's got a story but not everyone has has been or has a true story or an account of events. So uh, that's sort of where we came to when we got to Mexico. We were just going to go and embrace it and enjoy it. There's there's something about us as humans. We're attracted to to tragedy, really. We're, we're interested in, in anomalies, I guess, because you don't want to turn on the news and hear, oh, today in Mexico, nothing happened. <laughs> or, or, you know, two tourists were on the <laughs> beach and they enjoyed the sun, but one got burnt. You know, well, even that might make more <laughs> interest than, than the two tourists that enjoyed the day on the beach and nothing happened. But, but we're attracted to this and we tend to tell the stories over and over. We want to tell everybody else, oh, guess what I heard. Yeah, they're they're the more exciting stories. Look, it's really true. And the other really interesting thing is because we, you know, we went all the way through Central America and spent time in Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador and, you know, all the way through. And we spent our maximum amount of time in each country. So we didn't hit one border and spend a whole day getting through Honduras to get to the next border. We spent time there and we, you know, saw things that we wanted to see and we met people. But every country, as you go, when we're in Mexico and we said, oh, we're heading to Guatemala next, we had Mexican friends say, you need to be really careful in Guatemala because some terrible things happen in Guatemala City. And then our Guatemalan friends, oh, don't go to Honduras. So everyone has a story about their neighbours. Yeah, and that's very common. I mean, we, you know, all travellers seem to run into that where they're warning about the neighbours. But, but the thing is, I mean, it's not that it's untrue. It's not that these stories are not true, or at least for the most part. I mean, you know, the drug cartel is there and there's been incredible amounts of killing. And of course, there's been kidnappings and all that sort of thing. But I guess it's something you have to weigh up yourself and maybe through a little bit more research other than just looking at the highlights of the negativity that's out there of whether it's a risk that you're willing to take or whether you feel you can avoid those areas or, or however you want to handle it. Um, it's, it's not that the stories are completely untrue. No, that's right. And it's the same literally anywhere that you travel in the world. It's like there's something awful can happen anywhere. And I think you just need to be aware of your surroundings and do a little bit of research and sort of don't put yourself in a position where, hang on a minute, I'm not in the right place here or I've said the wrong thing or I'm having a beer with the wrong person or, you know, you just need to be a little bit mindful as you travel, I think. And where are you guys right now? In Chile, uh, in Concon, about an hour and a half, two hours north of Santiago on the coast. So what has changed in your mindset for the two of you um, from when you started the trip and you were considering that six months and figuring, well, we'll see how it goes to now? 
How do you feel differently or how does it compare to the way you thought when you left? I guess the funny thing is nowadays is we don't consider ourselves as tourists and more travellers. So being a traveller, you have a different mindset than a tourist because like a tourist goes into like a country and a town, they try and see as much as they can in the short time that they have, whereas we're travellers, we can take our time, we try and uh, immerse ourselves in the people, the culture and make friends and learn about the country, um, learn a little bit about the history of the country and um, it really opens you up uh, in the type of person you are and the friends you make over the journey has just been incredible. Agreed. We've made some, you know, some amazing friends that have opened their hearts and homes to us along the way when we've needed help or assistance in all the countries. So, you know, the 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 kindness of people when you start to travel and other people hear your stories, they really embrace that because they might not at this point be in the opportunity to be able to do what we're doing, but they embrace that you are and are happy to help and you know make you welcome. But you're not saying tourist in, in a snobby sense, which is often used. You know, when you say uh, a tourist, you picture them with the, the mirror sunglasses and sort of uh, waltzing through places like they no, own no, it no. with their money. Bet, you guys are referring to it as, as, as a different mode of travel. In other words, you could be a tourist. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with it if, if you're on limited time, but it's a different mode of travel. It absolutely is. And there's no rush. You know, if we get in somewhere, I mean, we've traveled, you know, in the past when we've had like a two week vacation and we we land wherever we're going to be and we hit it like 100% of the time and we get home absolutely exhausted because we've spent all this money to get to where we're going for 10 days and we have to see and do as much as we can. So when I say tourists, that's kind of, you know, like when you just fly in, spend all your money, hit every touristy spot and fly home, you know, like you're in a rush. You can't stop and have a day where you think, you know what, I really like this beach, but tomorrow I'm booked to do this tour so I can't stay longer, whereas we have that, uh, we're lucky enough that we can say, this is really nice here, so let's stay longer and just take it literally one day at a time. How long were you on the road or how far did you get before you, you had that feeling sort of change over? Not long, to be honest. Uh, I always love travel, so I n- never get homesick or neither of us really get homesick. So we never have that urge to, you know, or we have to go home because we feel homesick. So for us, I think probably by the time we hit 12 weeks in the US, we were sort of like, well, three months has gone really quickly. So now let's just, let's just take it one day at a time, one country at a time and just see how we get. We've always had the understanding when if one of us has had enough or we're tired, we, we just stop, you know, we'll just pick somewhere nice and we stop for a rest, you know, if we don't want to ride or we just want to recharge, if you, so to speak. We've always had that. Or if one of us wants to go home, then, you know, we enjoy what we've done and we head home. We've got that understanding between each other that it is what it is. But to date, we're nearly, I think, 4th of April has been, will be our three years of traveling nonstop. And uh, I think we're still going strong. When you were leaving the States after that six months um, and, and sort of heading down south, sort of all brand new for you at this point, what were you worried about most? Uh, well, I, I don't know if I was really worried about anything. I guess, you know, things that just for me, you know, th- making sure that I you know, can get money out of an ATM, you know, when you cross a border or something like that, just that little bit of anxiety to know that if you need a drink, you can get a drink there and then or just little things like that, but nothing, nothing major. What about the border crossings themselves? 
Uh, well, we'd, <laughs> we'd never done one. So, you know, the first one was for us going from the US into Mexico, which was at Tuc- we crossed at Tecate's. And uh, we'd never done it before. We had our little folder with all our copies and registration papers and insurance. And we had everything ready to go, thinking, you know, we were going to be put through like a third degree, you know, inquisition. But, you know, the guy was really friendly. We didn't speak literally five words of Spanish. So we bumbled through it. He spoke a little bit of English and it was easy. Mexico crossing the border was easy. They did our paperwork. They made us welcome. It was fine. So then we thought, oh, this is fine. You know, this is this was a breeze. I'm not going to worry about this anymore. Then, to be honest, then when we crossed from Mexico into Guatemala, the whole process there with the paperwork was a little bit different and it was a little bit more frantic and there was lots of fixes sort of humbugging to help and copies for this and copies for that and it sort of became a little bit more, uh, I think, manic is the word I'd use, manic. <laughs> but our first uh, experience in Mexico was a funny one and we were just laughing about this with some other people the other day is uh, we crossed at the Takati border and we headed south and uh, we got to the point not far across the border where we needed a drink, so we pulled into a little tienda and uh, we pulled up on the bikes and uh, this young kid came up to us and had a dirty cloth in his hand and wanted to see if he could wash our bikes and we said no thanks. And uh, Monique stayed with the bike and I walked inside and I just had that feeling that something wasn't right and as I walked in, all the staff in the little tienda were standing at the door looking out the door and I thought, mm, something's not right here and Monique's out there with the bike. So I quickly was around in the shop and bought a couple of drinks, paid for them and walked out. And what they were standing at the door looking at was this guy. And uh, when I walked out, I realised he was either drunk or high on something and uh, went back to the bikes. We're standing there drinking our drink and then he's come back with a half-eaten sandwich and he's offered us the half a bite of his half-eaten sandwich and uh, – We've said, no thanks. But while we're standing there, this, uh, like, uh, F-250 dual cab truck came comes flying down the road into the car park and locks it up in the car park, and there's four guys in the back, and they jump out and they grab this guy and just throw him into the back of the truck. It was family. It was family. <laughs> yeah, so obviously he was hanging around the truck causing a bit of grief and uh, the owners knew who he, where he was from and called the family and they came and picked him up. But for us, it's our – we've only been in Mexico like two hours and this has happened right in front of us and we're sort of <laughs> looking at each other going – Wow, the maybe. stories may be true, <laughs> but you know, like we we laugh because we spent we spent six months in Mexico. We left literally the day our visa expired, kicking and screaming, and that's the worst story we have to tell of Mexico. That's the that's as good as we've got. <laughs> that, that's the only story. Did Did you plan where you where you were going in Mexico to avoid you know problem areas or problems in general? There was, uh, when we, we crossed in, uh, obviously, at Baja, and we spent a month there on Baja, travelling the east and west coast, and we crossed by ferry into Mazatlan. When we got to Mazatlan, we spent uh, two weeks in Mazatlan there. We were there for Christmas. It was beautiful. Um, and we got our map out to see what we were actually going to see and do while we were there. And there's a couple of regions for us as Australians, so this is just that was specific for us, is that our travel insurance – doesn't cover us for certain areas that our travel insurance now government deems uh, unsafe. Interesting. So there was two reg there was two regions for us that 
um, if we'd gone in and had an accident or got into trouble, we had to leave that region to get assistance. So, and I can't remember what they were uh, right up north, um, but there were just two regions that for us, it's not that we didn't want to go and we would have gone, but that risk of if something happens and we need assistance, then we don't have any uh, was for us. It was like there's other things to see. So we just avoided those two regions. Mm. But that was just specific for our insurance. I but, don't know how. That's just, yeah, that's know. insurance reason. But you, you didn't do it for safety? You didn't look at areas that were, you know, supposedly hot and, and stay out of those? No, no, not really. How about? No, I don't think there was any. How about in countries now where, where you're going through? Do you do that now? Do you avoid, I mean, because it, like even if you went, we were already talking about this sort of, but even if you went to a city in Canada or the United States, there's all kinds of places in, in cities that are completely unsafe by most people's standards. People still go there, but, you know, obviously the, the chance of an incident is higher. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's not uncommon, but do you look at that when you're, when you're going through a country and sort of take recommendations, maybe take it through the traveler's grapevine um, through social media? Um, yeah, well, probably more through locals like you know like when we cross you know there's normally someone that's followed us or is a Facebook friend along the way that when we're going to their country they give us a you know go here go here don't do this don't do that uh, we normally get a little bit of feedback and also uh, like the social media sites like um, we're in obviously South America so the Pan, Pan American Writers Association there was a post that went up there a couple of days ago about a virus down there that's an uncurable virus in Argentina and it's killed 10 people already so the Argentinians have actually closed down that town so you can't ride through it so we, we follow those posts and we look at uh, you know it's it's something that you have to review on a weekly or daily basis because things change and happen that quickly. But even going back to Mexico, we, we rode through Mexico when the Mexican fuel riots were on the Mexican gasoline riots. And up in the mountains, we actually rode through some of the riots um, and we'd, we'd ride up to them where they had the gas stations closed. And I mean, they were burning buses and they were doing all sorts of stuff. We'd ride up to them. The ringleader had come out. And the first thing he'd do is go gringo. And, of course, we'd go, no, 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 no gringo, Australiano. And uh, we'd just strike up a conversation with him. And once they he gave us the go-ahead to go through the riot, the, it was like the sea parting, like all the riders would just part and we'd ride our bikes through it. Um, we just had to make sure we had a full uh, gas tank whenever we could because they were shutting down and protesting the gas stations. So... Um, fuel was pretty scarce at that point in time, but uh, sometimes you've just got to uh, stop and talk to the people. But at no point did we feel that we were in danger or, uh, you know, physical harm was going to come to us. I mean, when we first crossed into uh, Bolivia, we were in Potosi and we were heading into Sucre and they had the uh, protests happening in Sucre. So the lady we'd rented the Airbnb from had basically sent us a message to say, no one can get in or out of Sucre, so just stay where you are and I'll send you a message when you can get through. So we just stayed in Potosi for a couple of days and she sent us a WhatsApp message and said, no, protests are over, you can come in now. So, you know, everyone shares that information. As I say, you know, bad news. No news is good news. Bad news travels fast. <laughs> has, has there been any, uh, how many countries have you guys went through already? Uh, 13. 13 countries. Are there any of those 13 that you would avoid now? No. 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 Even Nicaragua had a problem a little while ago. It took them a few months to sort it out. But, you know, even towards the end of that, you know, people were 
finding a way through. Um, you, you might just have to sit and wait for a little while for a local disturbance to uh, subside. But even when we're in Honduras, um, we went into Honduras and the day we were going to leave, we went down to check out of the hotel. And uh, the staff at the hotel went, oh, you can't leave because we were going back into Guatemala. And we went, oh, why? And they said because they're, they're protesting and they've set fire to the border crossing and they're burning tyres and all that sort of thing. And where we were in Honduras, we were there for 10 days. And out of that 10 days, we only had power for 50% of the time, like electricity. So uh, the locals had gone and set fire to the border in protest, but we had to sit there for another two days before we could get back across that border. Mm, so you just follow their advice, and did you go check it out? Uh, no, it, was, <laughs> it turned out really funny because the day we went across the border was a Sunday, and they the staff at the hotel actually came to us and said, right, if you want to leave, tomorrow is going to be the day. And we went, oh, why? And is they the, said... Is the protest over? And they went, no, the protest isn't over. But on Saturday night, there's a big football game and everyone will be hung over. So they won't start the protest <laughs> until later in the day. Yeah. So if we go first, <laughs> if we go first thing Sunday morning, they'll all be drunk and hung over and we'll be able to get through. And they were right. <laughs> so that, that's the day you left? Yeah. Yeah. That's the day we left. We went early. Everyone was still sleeping. <laughs> that's when local knowledge really comes in handy. Absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, we say that, and we—I mean, we—we we sort of tell these stories, and everyone that's travelled through like Central and South America will know that you know that's how the people get their point across is by their protests. And it sounds, you know, we went through the Gasolina riots and the, the one in Sucre, which was about mining rights, and we've been through a couple in Peru, uh, the potato, uh, potato, potato protests, but. We say it like almost with a little bit of humour because at no point did we ever feel threatened. You know, that's just how they get their point across, you know, in the countries by protesting their government. So, you know, we've never felt unsafe or feel been in the middle of something where we think we really shouldn't be here and we need to get out. We've never felt like that. We're going to take just a two-minute break to thank a couple of sponsors that helped bring this episode to you today. But stick around because when we come back, we get a lot more to talk about. And including, we're going to get into right away, was we're going to talk about a border crossing where they got a warning. There's some stuff to learn here. Also, afterwards, don't forget, we've got um, some travel tips from another couple. So stay with us. we got a lot more on this show. I want you to remember this website, motobirdadventures.com. That's motobirdadventures.com. The woman behind it, Carrie Doherty, she runs trips for women by a woman. She guides the trips. She plans the trips. And boy, is she doing really well with this. She's got a whole bunch of adventures lined up for 2019. Now, this is a chance for you to get a, a significant other or, or, or somebody that you uh, care about out on a trip. If you are a guy and you know a woman, you want to treat her to something, perfect, because you can actually buy her a space on one of these trips, and you can go along yourself as well. So it's not that the men are excluded, but it's all about, uh, according to Motobird, it's, it's all about making these trips for the women, making it really special for the woman. So I think that's fantastic. And for you women riders, um, this is a time to be out with other like-minded riders. She's got a bunch of different trips, um, everything from dual sport to paved roads, Starting um, in March now, I guess the next trip is in March. There's April, May, June, July. You have to go to the website and check it out. 
um, www.motobirdadventures.com. See what all the fuss is about. Drop by. And of course, anytime you're dealing with Carrie, anytime you're inquiring for you or somebody else, drop in there. You heard her here on Adventure Rider Radio. www.motobirdadventures.com. Now, one other thing I want to talk about before we get back to the show is I can tell you from experience what a quality set of foot pegs does for your ride. My IMS rally pegs improve my riding bottom line. Honestly, I would not have expected that much of a difference over my stock pegs in my bike but it was immediately noticeable. I don't know if you uh, listened to the episode that I did the, f- the first time I tried them. I, as soon as I got on the driveway, I mean, we're talking feet, like 20 feet. The moment I stood up on the pegs, it was immediate. You know, this is superior. Your foot pegs are your connection to the bike. And the stock ones just don't do your bike justice. And don't blame the, the manufacturers. They've got to keep the bike at reasonable prices, etc. And compromises have to be made. But I think someone like you that listens to this show, you're going to benefit from what IMS is offering in foot pegs. Drop by their website, www.imsproducts.com and see what they have. They've got a full line of adventure pegs. They should have one for your bike. Remember, these pegs are warranted for life. So, and, and IMS is serious about this. This is a company that deals with all kinds of racers all the time www.imsproducts.com. Of course, anytime you're dealing with them, make sure you throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. www.imsproducts.com. Did you feel like it's your nationality that sort of saved you because you're an Australian? Because you mentioned before that they came up and they said gringo and you said, no, no, we're, you know, we're Australian. Is it the nationality or is it just the fact that you're a foreigner? Uh, well, I don't know because it depends. But for us, I know if I use Bolivia, for example, we had no problems anywhere in Bolivia. I think we say we're Australiano and they're like, oh, because they know how far away we've come or traveled to get to where we are. But we know other people like that traveled through Bolivia where we had no problem whatever with gas, accommodation, protest, you know, no problem at ever. But for them, they were refused gas at gas stations five times. Yeah, about five times I think, um, because they were American and they were just like it was. They were quite whoever they were dealing with was just like no, that's not going to happen. I'm not saying that happens for everyone, but the couple that we know that went through, you know, they had a problem with their with their number plate and their accent, and some they just had trouble buying gas. And that's the only thing we could think of as, you know, because we didn't have any problem. That was the only thing we could think of that might have been the nationality. But I think all nationalities go through, so. Uh, the, the key thing is is uh, you always go in there, you always be happy. If you can have a joke with them, have a joke with them. And, uh, you know, a lot of them are just doing their job and uh, you can imagine how tedious their jobs would be sitting at a border control station. So if you can make their day, have a joke with them, have a laugh with them, you know, it, it puts a good light on things. And I think that's the thing too, like Paul just said, it's, it's your, if you're friendly to them and, and approach with a smile or sort of, you know, I really don't know what I'm doing, but here I am and, you know, I can offer you this paperwork or, and you just sort of have a laugh with them and you're happy and pleasant, I think, you know, that goes a long way. But that would be the same if you were in Australia. If you approach someone and you're in a really like grotty mood for the day and you were snappy at them, you'd get snapped back at, you know. So I think that's not, that's not a Central or South American thing or where we've traveled. That's people in general. So we, you know, we always try to approach with a smile. But that same thing doesn't work necessarily when you're crossing the border into the United States or, or Canada or something like that. That, that sort of attitude may get you in trouble. 
<laughs> yeah. Although coming into Chile, we were we were having a bit of a laugh about something, and the the border official like tapped on the window at Paul, and he said, "Pay attention." Yeah. So we got in trouble crossing. <laughs> Shut up and do as you We got we got we were you know we were with um we were with Peaky Peaky with Mickness and Elspie, and we were having a bit of a laugh at the window, but we got the tap on the glass, and you know, pay attention, and we were like, "Ooh." So we quickly paid attention. So so friendly and happy, but but maybe not too much goofing around. Yeah, I think we were told in no uncertain terms coming into Chile. <laughs> right, have a little respect, I guess. They they felt you were being yeah. disrespectful, but somehow. Now, when you're crossing the border with someone else, you're, you're with Mickness and Elsby, when, when you're crossing the border with them, do you find that it changes the, the, the dynamics of your border crossing at all? And, and would you cross with anybody else you meet up on, on the road? Uh, well, I, I mean, we would like traveling together, but I mean, you know, you take your paperwork to one window and someone goes to another to another window. So I, it's not like we went through and put four lots of paperwork and four lots of passports, you know, through at the same time or anything. So um, I think it just makes it a little bit less stressful if something's not quite going right and there's four of you to work out the problem. That always makes it, you know, safety in numbers, so to speak, If because my Spanish isn't that, isn't that great. So it's nice to say, is that, do I understand that properly? And then sort of that in that way, it's good to travel with other people and cross the border, definitely. But we had a laugh that day. How many bikes are you, are you seeing while you're on route, um, particularly while you're traveling from one place to another? How busy is it with overlanders on motorcycles? Uh, we don't see that many bikes or overlander vehicles, whether they're bikes or cars. We tend to, because um, we can spend so much time in each country, we tend to stay off the beaten track like uh, in Peru. We spent a lot of time in the mountains exploring the mountains and that sort of thing. If we drop down out of the mountains and hit the Pan American because it's a big thing to ride the Pan Pan American at the moment. So if we drop down onto the Pan American, we see a lot of bikes and a lot of cars just doing the Pan American. Um, But we don't spend a lot of time on the Pan American, so I'd say we don't see very many at all. No. I mean, when we've crossed into Chile here, this is so far one of the countries we've seen the most big bikes. Uh, There's a lot of big, you know, GSs here and but not not overlanders or travelers just local guys as well so all of a sudden when they see the big motorbikes here it's not like oh a big motorbike like sometimes you know when we're in Guatemala or Nicaragua it was like oh big motos and it sort of caught everyone's attention a little bit and they're all excited to know where we came from whereas here there's a lot of locals riding around so we just kind of blend a bit here. What bikes are you guys riding? Uh, I'm on a BMW F700 GS factory lowered model. Because I'm, I'm a shorty. And I'm on the uh, F800 GS Adventure. You went for the factory lowered um, version. That's made a big difference for you, Nick? Yeah, I'm only like five foot three. So I originally I had a, a 650 GS and I had just this, the standard height one and I was forever on tippy toes. And when the bike was fully loaded... If it was, if I couldn't get my footing, you know, how many times her name was Amy and I dropped it that many times because I couldn't get my footing. So when it was time to do this big trip and we upgraded the bikes to come away, uh, because there was an option there to have the factory lowered one, I just chose that, you know, because it just gives me a little bit more confidence when I'm on unste- uneven ground. Any disadvantage to that that you found? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> The benefit is is that I'm confident riding it, you know, like I've got good footing and that's fine. The disadvantage is, is that it's lowered. So in in 
the US, it was fine. Mexico, the speed humps or the topes. Um, it all started in Mexico. It all started in Mexico. <laughs> so the topes were just, some of them were that high that I literally had to put my hazard lights on and just literally walk it over because my, my crash plate would just scrape across the top of it. So there was a lot of that in Mexico. Um, of course, it has the different rims on it on the 700 cast rims. cast rims so I hit a huge pothole in Mexico that dented one of my rims luckily I didn't get a flat tire or anything and I survived till I got to Cancun where we had it properly repaired but the rims and the height of it would be the biggest disadvantages and one thing I'll give Mexico is because of their roads the one thing they can do is fix rims <laughs> they're, they're used to dealing with that yeah, 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 for sure. So, you know, so probably the biggest disadvantage is is the height of it because the crash plate, you know, it's just it scrapes over all of the speed humps. And on really rocky roads, I just need to be a bit careful too. I guess with the topes, though, um, any street bike's going to have to deal with that as well. Yeah. You know, so anybody yep. anybody riding yes, a sport it's... bike or something is going to have the same problem. What, what about taking them on an angle? Uh, Some of them are just too big. It makes no difference. <laughs> most of them are just short and sharp. And uh, even in uh, Mexico, uh, we were both on my bike one day and hit a, hit a tope and it was made out of concrete, but it had a sharp edge on it and just put a two-inch split straight through my tyre. Uh, let's, let's talk about your, your equipment, your setup on the bikes for a minute here. Can you give me a rundown on what you have for bags and what you've done to equip the bikes for the trip? Uh, we originally started with hard panniers and only recently, um, probably within the last six months, we swapped over to soft bags, which in hindsight turned out to be a lifesaver because heading into northern Chile here, we did some off-road riding in the mountains and uh, we hit some sand and I actually came off. We both came off in the same sand section but I actually got my leg caught under the pannier. And uh, if I hadn't have changed from hard panniers to soft panniers, it would have snapped my lower leg in half. Uh, and the funny thing is, is when we went into this section of road, we were stopped by the police on the way in. And uh, he showed us some photos of a German adventure rider that had gone in the day before. And he'd actually come off his... Uh, 1200 GS adventure the day before, broke his leg and he'd had to set off the emergency beacon and he laid on the side of the side of the road with a broken leg for eight hours, I think it was, before the rescuers could actually get to him. So I think it's a godsend that we've changed to those side panniers. Um, my bike's equipped with the GPS. Most of our navigation's done through the phone. We also carry a satellite tracker, which is also our emergency rescue device. So if we do have an accident and come off the bikes, um, we press that button and someone's going to come and get us. What's the sat tracker use? Uh, it's a Garmin InReach. So it's the one, yeah. You, you can, you can uh, talk back and forth. You can send text messages with it. Yeah, that's correct. So um, we actually use it for our tracking. So it drops a point every 10 minutes as well. So if we do ever um, disappear or something happens to us, our family can go on there and say, right, this is where he was in the last, you know, this is where his last drop point was. So he's somewhere in that area. Uh, if we do press the emergency SOS button, then they'll actually communicate with us um, via that to say, 
you know, what's the problem, helps on the way, and they can keep us up to date with the process of the rescue. Anything else with the bikes? Any any other equipment that you set up specifically for it? In particular, things that, that worked for you and they feel that you would absolutely do again? Uh, apart from setting up the ergonomics like handlebar risers on my bikes, I've got pivot pegs. They're pretty much stock standard. Skid plates? Uh, yeah, we, we put skid plates on them. Um, yeah, so they've got the usual skid plates and crash bars. and Bark busters. Yeah, Monique's got the bark busters on hers. Um, but with the skid plates and the crash bars, you know, with being the adventure rider and riding off-road, it's not a matter of if you come off, it's when you come off. So the equipment on the bikes, like the skid plates and crash bars, they've done the job really well. Um, the bikes are still in fairly good nick. You know, the, the crash bars take a hit and, uh, you know, they've got a bit of bark off them here and there. But uh, apart from that, the bikes have um, served us pretty well. Now, I don't I- like to call it coming off my bike. I like to call it a graceful dismount. <laughs> 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 and that makes it feel better when you go down, right? <laughs> yeah, I've become very good at that graceful dismount. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the graceful part is is how you handle it afterwards. Absolutely. Just dust myself off. Now, are, are you guys, uh, are you doing B&Bs? You've mentioned B&Bs a couple of times. Are you doing camping or a combination? Uh, in the US, we did mainly camping until we got sort of to Florida where it was hot. And so we sort of took the opportunity to stay in some hotels. Uh, so either camping hotels and spent some time with friends at their house. Mexico, we did a little bit of camping on Baja and then hotels all the way through because, I mean, they're just, they're gorgeous and they're cheap. I mean, that's just the, the fact of the matter. You can get a really nice hotel for a really good price. So Mexico was that. Uh, and then we had basically hostels and hotels all the way through until we got to Chile. And we've started doing a little bit of camping again uh, in the national parks and on the coast as we crossed at the border. So there'll be more camping. There's been more camping in Chile and heading further south now, there'll be more camping. And as far as that gear goes, the, the camping gear that you have, um, what have you found that really works? Any any tips for somebody else who might be considering it and sort of thinking, well, what should I take? Uh, funny you should say that because uh, we're getting a website up and running at the moment and we're just putting all the content into that and I was only just writing the tent section today. So we started off with a tent that was way too big and too heavy um so when we're in peru we thought right that's it because once we hit chile we're going to be doing more camping so we hunted around and uh found a three-man tent we were sort of restricted as to what we could buy in chile peru oh peru sorry (laughs) the uh, the imported equipment into peru is um there's a lot of tax on it and it can be expensive so we ended up with a little marmot tent, which has uh, served us really well in the camping that we've done with it so far, and we're really, really happy with it. It's a really good little tent. So worth the money to, to, to spend uh, on a, a quality one, I guess. Especially when you're using it all the time, absolutely. You really, you know, you have to sometimes just spend a bit more than what you want to to get good equipment because when you're using it all the time, it does take, you know, wear and tear. So it's not like it's just being used for two weeks and then put away for another nine months. You know, it's being used every day. It's like a little house. So I think spending a little bit more on those kind of uh, pieces of equipment is a good thing. Mm, I would say 
the best one of the best camping things that we have is that we have we bought a foam a proper memory foam pillow and we took it and had it cut in half and had covers made for it so it's like a half size for us so it's easier to pack but for me that is one of the best things we carry for camping equipment is a is this memory foam pillow because the blow up ones we we went through quite a few of them when we first started out and we replaced them with different models different styles and everything was always a little bit of an issue for for either Paul or for me and so we switched to the memory foam and they're perfect so I would always say to someone think about the memory foam pillows because they squish into a stuff pack and take no space and they just inflate and you get a perfect pillow for a good sleep. I've never understood the memory foam thing as far as why do they call it memory foam? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't hold the shape. I mean, I guess it does when it goes back because like you said, you can squish it down really small. Yeah. And then it just, you sort of think this is never coming back and then you just let it out the bag and before you know it, you've got a a good size pillow again. So that would be my favorite piece of camping because I think when you're camping all the time and you're riding every day or, you know, doing long distance or, you know, hard, hard riding, you have to sleep well. If you wake up and you haven't slept well and your body's a bit sore and especially as you get a bit older, (laughs) you have to sleep well and be comfortable. (laughs) I think that's a really good tip because the, the inflatable ones, they just don't work. They're, they're sweaty and they're hard no. and they, they just feel terrible. I mean, even if you let air out of them, they're, they're horrible, I think, in my experience. With it. As a matter of fact, most times I don't have one. But now that you've mentioned that, I, I might check out doing a, a memory foam one because you're right. It squishes down to literally nothing. You, you can pack it in anyway. Yeah, it's the size. Literally, it's the, once it goes into a stuff sack, it's like the size of a jumper. Mm-hmm. You know, it just squishes down. So that would be my, the thing that I wouldn't do without. What about um, overall tips? You know, someone's interested in doing something similar to what you're doing or have done so far. Um, anything you've learned along the way, tips that you would give that would make it easier for someone? I think the main thing I've learned since we left is don't put too much thought into the trip. Um, and we've also seen people that have decided that they'd like to do this and they, they spend like two years planning it. Um not because they don't have the financial ability to do it or they just spend that long planning it and then they spend that long planning it and then they talk themselves out of it. So my main piece of advice is if you're able to do the trip and you're willing to do the trip, don't put too much thought into it. And mine would be if you want to ride from point A to point B but you only have – you know, a certain amount of time, don't rush to say I rode from Alaska to Ushuaia and do it in like three months. You're really better off to just pick one country or two countries and see it well than we've met so many along the way that said, oh, we said, oh, we spent six months in Mexico and they said, oh, we love Mexico, but we just didn't have time. And it's like, if you've got, if you want to do a trip, see as much of the countries as you can and enjoy them instead of just sitting on one road and, you know, flying through it in a couple of weeks. That would be, if you have the opportunity to do it, that would be mine. It would be like, just take your time and do one country well instead of doing it in a blink of an eye. Enjoy everything. Spend as much time as you can and don't rush it. How hard is it really? I mean, I mean the whole travel thing, the, the going down through Mexico and, and Nicaragua and Guatemala, going through the borders, dealing with the, the foreign language. You know, a lot of people look at it and, th- and say that, oh, it's, it's, it's just too difficult. It's too hard to do. Others will go on it like yourselves and say it's easy. 
is it a certain type of person? Were you that type of person before you left? I think that's what I was sort of trying to get to before when I was asking about what's changed is, are you the type of person that maybe looked at that before and thought that could be really hard and then got into it and found that, you know what, this is so easy, it's ridiculous. Or maybe you're the adventurous type that where you're, uh, you're kind of comfortable going beyond your, your comfort zone. I think we've always traveled, so um, we haven't found it hard. Um, and we often talk about it as being like a job. Um, it's not hard, but it's consistent. Like uh, each day when you're going to move, like we don't work more than a couple of days in advance as to where we're going to be and where we're moving to. We've always got a plan on a country of what we want to see and what the highlight lights are in that country, but we don't know how we're going to get to that destination within that country. You know, you might pull up in a town and uh, speak to the locals and they might say, well, if you go up here in the mountains, there's waterfalls that no one knows about or there's this and that. And so we're always, if we did have a plan, we'd always be deviating off that plan. So we don't live more than a couple of days in advance, but it's persistent like a job. So Say if we were leaving here tomorrow, we'd have a destination as to where we're going to go to. Um, coming down through um, northern Chile, there's a couple of stretches where there's, uh, you know, not much gasoline. So we research, you know, are we able to get gasoline in the remote areas? And so it is a little bit like having a job and it's persistent like a job. If, if that makes sense. And I think because we've also travelled, you know, we've been lucky enough that we've travelled a lot before we started this trip. I think we're also, I don't know if patient or tolerant, I'm not sure, probably both as to when things don't go, one of us is a little bit more patient than the other. <laughs> um, but, you know, when something doesn't go quite according to plan, like at a border crossing or if someone, you know, something's not working quite right with the paperwork, you know, I would Nicolagra was a prime example for us. So for Western Australia, where we come from, our registration papers get issued every year that we pay. Each year they're the way that it's done is they're a different colour. So my papers were older than Paul, so my papers were green and Paul's papers were blue. So when we got to Nicaragua and we handed over our paperwork for the motorcycles, they didn't like them because they weren't the same. So they can see they're from Western Australia. We're both together, but one's blue and one was green. And so they said, no, one of these is a copyist. So then we had to try and explain that, well, actually, no, because our government does it like X, Y, and Z, but he wouldn't have anything of it. And we stood there for probably an hour having this discussion and Paul was getting really like, like a little bit impatient because there's nothing we can do about that. So he'll go and sit with the bike and then I just sit there and we work through it. So we work as a team when something's not quite going right for one person. If we're starting to get a bit frustrated, it's like we leave the other one to do it. So I think patience and tolerance is probably two of the best attributes you can have if you're going to do long-term travel. And one of the cardinal rules we have is we don't ride at night. Um, if something's going to happen to you, it's going to be at night. But that situation in Nicaragua, we didn't get out of that border crossing until 8 o'clock at night and it was well and truly dark. But luckily, we weren't staying far from the border and we were in communication with the people we were staying with. And they actually drove their car out to the border to escort us back 
to where we were staying at night. But I have to say this, it wasn't necessarily because we were in an unsafe area or anything like that. The reason they come, one of the reasons that they explained they come to get us was because we crossed near Samoto. And so that is the largest population of wild donkeys in Nicaragua. And so as you're riding along the road, you can't see them until it's too late, but there's literally donkeys everywhere. Mm. <laughs> so they were more worried that we were going to hit a donkey, I think. <laughs> But do you always have the confidence when you're dealing with something like that, for instance, at the border? Do you always have the confidence that it's just a matter of trying to, you know, get this person to see it the way it is or or get the paperwork done? You, you don't have any fear of, you know, things just not working out in your favor? No, because, I mean, first of all, you know, we're not trying to do anything wrong and our paperwork is what it is. And we also say that is what it is. That's our favourite saying. It is what it is because sometimes it'll work and sometimes, you know, something won't work. And so you just have to work through it because, you know, panicking or worrying isn't going to resolve it any quicker. So you just have to sit there and stay calm and, you know, slowly work your way through it. When I explained to him, you know, especially this particular one, it took a while for him to understand, but we got there in the end because I could show him a uh, electronic copy of my registration papers from the year before where they were yellow and I could say to him that every year they're different because it shows which one's current and then we kind of got it in the end but uh, you just everything can be fixed I think you know it doesn't touch wood we haven't had an incident where we haven't been able to solve a problem so everything can be fixed it's just a case of you know staying calm thinking it through and you know working your way through the problem. And some situations it might be if you do get to a border crossing and you get someone that's just giving you a hard time and won't process you, um, go back, come back the next day or the day after and try and get another person that um, will help you through. I mean, we haven't had that, um, but we know other people that have done that. They've left a border because something's been too tricky and they've just come back the next day. But us personally, we haven't had that happen to us. No. So what's the plan now? What's in, in the future for you guys? So we're heading south now. Um, we had to hang out in um, Peru for a little while because it was winter. So um, it's now summertime down here. So we're heading south down through um, Chile and we'll probably head down to Irishwale and then spend as long as we can in Argentina and head up the east side and then um, probably... Hit, hit a few of the smaller countries up there and then into Brazil. So I'm guessing we'll probably be in South America for another 12 to 18 months. Uh, then it'll probably be time to change continents, so probably over to Africa. Um, but we are tossing up changing bikes um, before Africa, so we might freight the new bikes home, go home, build a couple of new bikes and then send them up to Africa. Wow, it sounds like quite the adventure. Nick and Paul, great to talk to you once again. Thank you very much. Yep, and thank you for having us, Jim. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure, as always. I've been speaking with Neek and Paul Hannaby, who also call themselves Two Bikes, One Dream. Now, go to the show notes for this episode at www.adventureriderradio.com. And as soon as we get it, we're going to get the link in there for their website. It's not up yet, but it should be very soon. So drop by the show notes and check that out. Stick around because coming up, we've got some travel tips from a couple of travelers we had on here just last week.
Remember last week's episode, we had Jessica and Greg Stone on talking about their South American adventures. They were the ones that didn't like each other when they met, and now they're riding around with a German Shepherd dog in the back of one of their bikes. Well, I sat down with them for a few minutes to get their top tips for travel, what they've learned on the road. We're going to get that right now. Now, this is one thing I like to do is to sit down with people who've been traveling like you guys and get tips from you from the things you've learned on the road, the mistakes you've made, or maybe things you've just found that have worked really well. So in your experience, in particular traveling around South America, even in your past experience in Africa, what um, what tips could you pass on to other riders now, things that you've found that have really worked for you, or maybe things that you've found that, that didn't work and you wouldn't do again? Okay, so the, the first and frankly most recent uh, one was... A, to use a tank saddlebag, I always thought that, that was kind of excessive or, you know, what, what are you really going to fit in just these few liters on either side? Um, we've had to rethink all of our carefully planned packing ever since, you know, Moxie joined us because now Moxie's got all of her gear and Jessica can't carry uh, a duffel on hers, so I'm, I'm the pack mule. Um, we got uh, these tank saddlebags, ours are, are Wolfman, um, and in fact, I didn't know initially what to put in there, so I just sort of had them empty. That turned out to be on our on our most recent um, Guatemala, Honduras, Belize trip was just fantastic because you don't realize like throughout the day you're buying food for camping that night, you're you're you know wet clothes from swimming in the lake the night before, whatever. What do you do with them? So having these sort of available bags that aren't actually you know not being packed to the brim and having something that you can stash during the day is fantastic. So tank saddle bags, I think, is I mean a hidden secret. Tank saddlebags, you're talking about the ones that actually go, you're not talking about a tank bag itself, you're talking the saddlebags, one down each side, get the weight a little lower. Exactly, like these, uh, is it a tank pannier bag, tank saddlebag? Yeah, tank pannier bag. I mean, uh, Aerostitch has them too. I have, I have an Aerostitch uh, That's right. We, we Yes, we saw those. that They have a really nice design uh, for theirs. Um, but yeah, and, and frankly, not packing them to the brim, but just setting out with them empty or almost empty. Um you know, anybody who's traveling, like you, you realize you stop somewhere, you buy some fruit on the side of the road, whatever, you got nowhere to put it, you know, because you've packed for like leaving the house full and, you know, you, you can't expand along the way. Yeah, that's, that's really what you're saying, though, isn't it? It's leaving with the bag empty. That's so important, or at least with a, a lot of room in it, because that's what happens. Everybody puts the bags on and just fills up and fills up and leaves full. And I've seen it before. You stop for to get something to eat, buy some food, and somebody will say, I don't have any room for food. Exactly. And yeah. so all of a sudden, you're tying a plastic bag onto one spot or right. sticking a water bottle into another, you know, it gets really random. So what else? Um yeah. So, so another thing, um, that's sort of been a lifesaver for me is, uh, waterproof socks. Um, I don't obviously wear them all day, every day, but I keep them in my pack and water crossings. I mean, invariably, you know, you're, you're, you, if you're, so I broke my leg, uh, by not, uh, checking a water crossing before I did it. Mm. Cause I, you know, I couldn't see the bottom and didn't realize there was a huge rut there and I hit the rut and that was that. So now of course I walk the water crossing if I can't see it. And then water gets in over my boot. It just happens. And then you're spending the rest of the, 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 the day with, you know, wet paws. So <laughs> waterproof socks is, is just, you know, um, a must in that and really like makes it a lot more comfortable, especially if you're camping, you know, your, your boots aren't drying out overnight. 
Um, let's see. We like to do uh, hydration bags in our tank bag. So some people, I guess, have them in their suits. Uh, we actually put one of these sort of portable ones inside the tank bag so that we don't have the weight on our back. It doesn't get, you know, hot, doesn't get heavy. Okay. Um, okay. Jess is pushing me to, to keep yeah, going. Go uh, I've got, um, we, we kind of, uh, we, we've done this pack safe, which is sort of like a, a mesh, uh, steel mesh that you can put around your, your bag. So what we do with it is we put it over our duffel bag and then lock it onto the bike to a hard part. And so, you know, it's by no means like foolproof, but the casual, uh, you know, passerby who might be inclined to, to steal something, I mean, they're going to have to be more sophisticated than just pulling your duffel bag. And that's given us a ton of peace of mind to like, not feel like we have to have eyes on the bikes at all times. Um, another sort of big, and maybe this is more general, but like, I had a really big uh, lesson learned in terms of what gear not to skimp on. So when we set out on our on our first trip, Jess really wanted new camp uh, cooking gear, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Come on, you know the the old junk that I have from my dad is great. It's it's survived for like forty years. What what's not to like about this?" And I don't really want to. That's not what I want to spend my money on. I could not have been wrong, more wrong. So we've since gotten, you know, really good high quality, uh, camping set, I guess like GSI is a GSI. And, um, you know, that makes the experience of camping just so much better because Jess is making all kinds of meals. She's enjoying the process. Things aren't sticking. I'm not, you know, complaining and moaning about having to do the dishes and, and how, what a miserable situation that is. And as a result, we camp more we save, we actually end up saving a lot of money on, uh, hotels and the experience is better because, you know, you don't do a motorcycle trip so that you can experience all the, the hotels and motels in your area, but rather to, to, to camp out. So the sort of like, you know, don't waste your money on things you really don't need, but also certain things you don't expect really will make a difference and, and make for a better experience. Yeah, and and you don't have to buy the the most expensive necessarily. Just some quality gear, rather than having something you've got to fiddle with, or like you say, have problems cleaning, etc. That's a that's a really exactly. good tip. Exactly. I don't think it's yeah. I don't think it's about money. I think it's about making sure that this is the thing that's going to work for me, um, because you know it will come into play. Right. And if you know if, if you just think of like home economics, like well, I camp out one time more a week because I I like doing it because my gear is helping me. Well, how much does that pay for over an eight month trip? Yeah. And again, just the pleasure of it. Now, this is a big one. And Jess is going to hit me when I say this, but like pack plenty of toilet paper. (laughs) I heard the hit. (laughs) She she has a habit of sort of uh, leaving that off her list. No, Um, I have enough. (laughs) Well, because we've had the experience now of having to raid the first aid kit for gauze. (laughs) (laughs) Because we've run out, you know, and you're going to get a bad tummy. You're uh, okay. I'm being told that I can't talk about that anymore. <laughs> but the, the important thing is toilet paper. Always travel with toilet paper. Um, okay, can I just throw in there? What I like to do yeah. is, is wipes. Um, if you can do the wet wipes, if you can manage to get them, they're very handy because they cover a whole bunch of things as far as cleaning. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there are probably people who still travel with books. I, I used to, and and I would sort of like tear the pages out as I go and. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, but, but, uh, just, you know, you Plenty can't use it. your, your, yeah, you can't use your, um, you know, your iPad for <laughs> like you can a book. So, 
Um, the other the other thing that we really enjoyed is uh, is sort of even if you're not someone who exercises, taking a morning jog, um, especially if you're camping out. But like, it's this wonderful way of kind of getting to know an area before you pack up and move on. Um, and especially if you've kind of short on time and so forth, you know, that 45 minute run in the morning before like life really starts just makes you kind of feel like you experienced that place a little bit, uh, before, you know, before you got to leave it and get focused on the next thing. I like that. So, I mean, even if you weren't into jogging, just going for a walk in the morning to, uh, to sort of center yourself, get some exercise for sure. Um, and yeah, look around. I, I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess just very sort of motorcycle focused in this, um, I would say uh, a brake riser. I, I know Alt Rider makes them. I think like the 1200s come with like these this thing that you can flip on and off. Um, but but basically like when you're standing up, and I think you've talked about this before, but when you're standing up, it, where your foot gets to the to the brake is very different in terms of you know the just sort of the ergonomics of it compared to when you're sitting. So. Um, we got brake risers and it has made a huge difference. And I will say, because Jess has a habit when we get to a more technical spot, you know, to, to decide that she's going to let me, as she says, I will let you ride my bike through this, <laughs> which she's very generous. Um, but she'll, she'll, she'll stop and she has a tendency to stop right where the technical part starts. Right. So, uh, it, it ends up being like, she stops right there. She kind of doesn't give me a runway. Then I have to to hop on her bike and sort of acclimate to her bike on the on the road uh, as I as I sort of wiggle my way through the technical bit. She sees how much trouble I have with it and says, "See, I was right to to give it to you." <laughs> and I say, "Well, you know, if you maybe had started me back a little bit, I <laughs> would have." So, the, but point being, the brake riser is fantastic for for when you're standing. Now, the one you're talking about with Alt Rider, I think that's a two step one, isn't it? There's no real moving parts there, right? Right. Yeah. Um, we had to make one for Jess's because they don't do it for the G650. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I just went back to the, the metal shop and, and put something together uh, that, you know, is very similar to Alt Rider. <laughs> Hopefully they're not listening. But um, I, I asked them, I said, you guys got to make this. And they said, you know, it's not on our plans. Um, but yeah, I mean, anybody who hasn't tried that, it, it, it makes a huge difference. And in fact, a buddy of ours, rode down on his new 800 rally or is it is the rally it's the rally uh and didn't have that was dropping his brand new bike right and left and then ended up taping a rock to it uh (laughs) halfway through because you know he was just beside himself and then it was like a brand new bike I mean, yeah. it was a brand new bike, but it was a brand new bike. Yeah, because when you're standing up, you, you're having to tilt your foot down so far to, to push the brake down. Yet when you're in sitting position, it's in the correct spot. So, yeah, you need something to step it up for when you're in your standing position. If you do a lot of standing for riding dirt, certainly uh, I'm sure it could be invaluable. And I've looked at mine many times. I've even looked at it just the other day and thought, I've got to do something here. Because uh, I mean, uh, not all the bikes are adjustable. And certainly the, the, the clearance, the free play between the, the master cylinder and the lever is adjustable. But the... The, the stop on it is not necessarily adjustable on all, all of them. And I think the F800 is, uh, maybe even the F650, the G650, rather, maybe the same. It hits a metal stop, and to adjust it, you're going to have to grind that. And, of course, that changes your sitting position. So, yeah, that's a, that's a very good tip. No, yeah, and this one does not require you to, I mean, there's nothing to do. You, It's not like adjusting your handlebars when you stand. It's a whole to-do. Mm. It's just there, and it's comfortable sitting, and it's comfortable standing. Anything else? I, I think, 
no, I think I think that puts us where we need to be. How about you, Jess? Well, these were these were both of ours, so well, I don't okay, know. Okay, anything so, else. so let's look at. Are, is there anything specific to women riders that that you would say that um, tips you could give? Oh yeah, one of the big ones I think I'd say it's it's universal, Gregory. Um, having a heated vest in the cold weather, oh my God, it makes such a difference. Mm. Um, I like to ride with my my summer mesh jacket on a lot of the time, and. Uh, and when I when it's cold weather and I don't happen to have my winter jacket with me, I like to have just the vest on. And the vest looks really good off the bike. And it has um, I have an extra battery for it so I can charge it on the bike. Um, and then when I'm off the bike, it just is a great extra piece of, of clothing to have. So um, a, a heated vest is definitely a plus. Yeah, definitely. Great tip. And if you get a chill or something like that, if you got sweaty, you get off the bike, you stand around for a bit, you get a chill. Nothing's nicer than putting that on and heating up rather than getting on the bike, riding and getting even colder, um, as you, as you head along the road further. So that, that's a great tip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mostly just prefer to complain about being cold. <laughs> I, I mean, it has been invaluable for Jess. Anything else, Jess? The only other thing I'd say is for women with long hair, obviously, when your hair is sticking out from under the helmet, it gets completely uh, windblown. Um, I know that there's some some products out there where you could braid your hair and you can basically put a almost like a sock, a silk sock over it. Um, I haven't used it because my hair isn't long enough yet, but that is something that I definitely would, would use if I had longer hair. Uh, there's nothing worse than getting off the bike. You take off your helmet. Uh, and you can't even get a comb through your hair because it's just all knotted. Um, and that's something that will just help keep it healthy as well. Yeah, that's a good one for for guys as well, if they have long hair. Anybody, long hair, and something you don't think about, I guess, until it happens to you. <laughs> until you've done the mm-hmm. ride and you take off the helmet, you go, oh, no, what have I done? Exactly. Right. Oh, and then related to that is um, I, I personally hate the feeling of having dirty hair and putting on my helmet. So when we're camping a lot of the time and we don't happen to be near a lake or a water source, um, what I get Greg to do is he'll fill up the um, our water bag and we have a portable shower uh, head that attaches to it. Um, it's an MSR bag and it's got the um, the shower head attached to it. And that's just fantastic for, for being able to wash my hair in the morning and take a quick shower and just to feel clean before I start the day. And that's just something that makes camping a lot easier and uh, it makes me want to do it a lot more. Yeah, that one I'm going to I'm going to just totally admit that uh, I'm right right there with Jess. Uh, we've told this to, to people and then then she gets laughed at and I get laughed at. But, you know, um, especially when you when your trip starts to look more like camping three, four, five days a week, six days a week. I think our last one in two and a half, three weeks, we maybe stayed in a hotel three times. Right. The, the what makes it what makes you sort of able to do that and not just feel grimy and, and lousy all day is sort of finding ways to have those creature comforts at mm-hmm. the campsite. And that, that's one. So I, I keep, uh, what is it, a six-liter bo- uh, bag mm-hmm. on sort of, if you imagine the duffel bag running uh, behind me, I keep one sort of right behind my back. And then I keep another one on the other side. So that one, you know, if we're someplace away from water, that's the one I can fill uh, that we don't need to drink from. And that's that's for showering. And it, it really makes a huge difference in saying, you know, waking up the next morning and not saying, okay, I can't wait till we get to a hotel, but saying, oh yeah, let's go to the next campsite. 
Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm all for showering, too. I'm all for washing of all sorts when you're camping. I've done a lot of camping ever since I was a little kid, and uh, I've, I've always thought it's good to wash. It makes the whole experience just so much nicer. Uh, often people come back and from a, a trip and they'll complain they stink and, you know, they haven't washed their hair in days. And I always think, why would you do that? You know, soap is so easy to carry with you. Water, unless you're in a place where you can't get water or very much water, water is pretty, you know, easy to find and you just have to heat it up. It's, it's easy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Uh, anything else, Jess? Mm, no, I think that's it. Great tips, Jess, Greg. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jim. And that was Jessica and Greg Stone from roughontheroad.com. Of course, that link will be in our show notes. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, and you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. And of course, we would like to thank you in particular for listening to the show. And of course, our producer, Elizabeth Martin, who works in the background here and you rarely hear from. Um, a special thanks to her. But hey, listen, if you like what we're doing here, we would love to have your support. In fact, we actually need your support. Um, the show is built on a, a model of some advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. And to, to allow us to expand, to keep us doing what we're doing, we need you to jump in there and say, hey, I like listening to this thing. This is worth something to me. So drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the support button. It's a bunch of different ways we've got there that you can support. You can either do one-time support or you can do monthly, which we would love if you'd sign up for our patron deal. And we've got different rewards there. I mean, pen your stickers and, and other things. So drop by the website, check it out. Please become a supporter of Adventure Rider Radio. And the other thing you could do is go and rate it anywhere you can find it. If you're listening to it on, on podcast apps and things like that, get on there, rate it. Let other people know what you think of the show. Again, thank you very much. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio, and I guess we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Elstabi Willifier. I'm Michas Willifier. We're from Piggy Piggy Overland. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 